Kia ora, ko Anne O'Brien toku ingoa, he kaiorongi o waituhi o tamaki, no mai, haru mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2021 event. Walking can be both a physical and a mental undertaking, a time for gathering thoughts and centering ourselves. For Katerina van Bohemen, her 1998 journey, so beautifully depicted in the Ockham New Zealand Book Awards longlisted Towards Compostela, Walking the Camino de Santiago, is a pilgrimage away from a crisis in her marriage towards a greater understanding of self and family. For actor and writer Michelle Langston, in her moving essay collection, Times Like These, Walking the Slopes of Mangafo is a salve as she bids her father goodbye and strives to conceive. They speak with Carol Bew about journeys taken and wisdom gained. We hope you enjoy it. Tenakoto, Tenakoto, Tenakoto Katoa. Can I ask you first, please, to make sure your cell phone is on silent? Thank you. I'm Carol View from the Women's Bookshop and for many years was a, a long-time trustee of this wonderful festival. And I feel very privileged today to be here with two writers who have written very personal work that is full of integrity and really quite moving and beautiful, beautiful writing in both cases. I need to acknowledge also that there are actually four of us on stage today. Because, can you just open your jacket a moment? <laughs> For those of you who have read Michelle Langston, and I should say we have Michelle Langston and Katharina van Bohemen. For those of you who have read Michelle Langston's book, if you've got to the end, well, there are actually two essays in it to do with IVF. And the, the final essay in the book is detailed information about the IVF process she went through. And I learned more about it than I've ever known before, but I was totally gripped and involved by it, and I found myself at the end thinking, I hope it worked, I hope it worked. <laughs> and, and in fact, it's a, it's a spoiler alert, as you said, <laughs> Michelle, because at the end of the book, you don't know. You don't know. And it's just wonderful to know that it did work, and <laughs> this child is here with us today. <laughs> so... <laughs> Michelle is an actress or actor, as, as many of you will know, um, as well as a writer. And I would like to congratulate her on sharing Ishiguru last night. For those of you who were here, oh, I would never have dared. For those of you who were here, she, her knowledge of his, his novels was extraordinary. And there was a lovely rapport between the two of them, and it was the most wonderful event. So congratulations, Michelle. Thank you. So an actor and a writer. And Rena is a walker and a writer, and has written lots of small things until now. And this wonderful book, um, this, the, hold it that way, this is, this is Michelle's book. Um, Rena, as I'm going to call her, Katerina, a lot of her friends call her Rena, um, Towards Compostela is her first whole big book, and it is a journal. But these two books have amazing things in common. Can you just start by uh, just telling us a little, you start first, Rena, just a little bit of introduction about yourself. Uh, well, um, I, uh, I thought uh, there were a few words that came to my mind when I thought, no, what can I say about myself? First thing is that I am um, an immigrant's child. So 
I'm one of five. Our father came from Holland after the war, our mother from England after the war. They met at the Princess Ballroom in Guzney Street 50, uh, 69 years ago, and they're still alive. So we grew up in Hawke's Bay, and I think we were never quite one thing or the other. We weren't quite Dutch because we had the English mother. We weren't quite New Zealanders because we had this long name, which was unpronounceable by most standards. So we we're always, I always was particularly, uh, perhaps the others are more integrated than me, slightly on the outside, there was that. The other thing is that um, my mother had one thing that she wanted for us, and that was education. So she shot me off to school in Wellington, and I was brought up, uh, ed educated by very intellectually curious nuns who were also socially progressive and also they encouraged and expected quite a strong, uh, they placed emphasis on self-reflection. So I think they've in influenced me a lot throughout my life. One other thing is I'm extremely myopic. I can hardly see anything, and I have no sense of direction. And how I ever got to Compostela <laughs> is a totally, total mystery to me. <coughs> because I lost my way, I lost my specs, my day, uh, you know, so it's a miracle. But because I'm so short-sighted, the one thing that I love more than anything in the world is a book. Because I can bring it up close to my face, I can see the words, and a whole world inside every page of you know, a book. And my favorite words are we, because I think we are all part of the human chain, and and because there's always another thing that can happen rather than but. And, my fa and the nouns that I would suppose you, would, um, you might use to define me, yeah, I'm a mother of four children, more recently a grandmother, and a I'm a reader, a walker, and a writer <laughs> at the end. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> Michelle, just introduce, and introduce yourself in a few words. Sure. Tēnā koutou katoa. Um, I was born and raised in Tamaki Makoto, um, where most of my family still lives. And I am lately a freelance writer. I've come to it quite late in my life. I think I started writing at about 35, and I'm now 42. Um, and before that, and, and still now, I um, am an actor. So I've been an actor for about 20 years. Uh, I have no idea what my favorite words are. <laughs> I, I do not have anything particularly insightful to add, except here, I'm really happy to be here. And um, I love books, and I love words. Um, yeah, that's all. <laughs> that's wonderful. Thank you. So, your, your, your books have a lot in common. Um, yours begins with loss, and in a way, in a sort of a way, yours does, Rena, as well. Can we, can we start by talking about loss? Because we're, we're walking towards tomorrow, and I think both books are extremely positive, but they both begin, in a way, in a place of loss and change. Mm. Do you want to start, Michelle? Yeah, I wrote this book. The genesis for this book was grieving the loss of my father, Dawson. Um, and I wrote it, I began to write it about eight months into the grieving journey. So it was still really fresh. And I wrote from inside grief, from the inside to the outside, not really knowing what I'd find when I got my head up for air, I think would be the way to put it. So I just, yeah, I wrote my way out of a very painful situation. 
and then watched how mm. the rest of my life unfolded. But it wasn't therapeutic, you said to us. It wasn't, you weren't no. doing therapy for yourself. It was different from that, wasn't it? It really was not therapeutic. Mm. And to hold it as close as I held, particularly the first two essays, um, I found it very painful, but helpful in understanding where I, I had been and then to be able to see where I would go. It gave me a shape of a new universe without my dad in it. Mm. But no, I don't find writing therapeutic. I don't sort of have a sense of, oh, I feel better about something now. Mm. I, don't, I don't access it in that way. I just think I like to engage with it and really go deeply into it and then mm. set it free. And yeah, I don't have a, a sense beyond that that is, is necessarily helping me. Mm. So I wish it did. <laughs> well, one of the things that struck me about both books is how personal they are. They're both personal, but this incredible integrity shines through. So there's no self-indulgence at all. There's enormous integrity. Um, do you want to read the tiny piece you selected about the death oh, of your sure. father? We're going to read little bits throughout. There's a piece about you wrote about your father at the very beginning. Yeah, this is the, from the first essay, which is called Parade. It's literally the beginning of the book. <clears throat> I held my father close as he left us, and I didn't let go. His death interrupted the processional sun of an ordinary morning, and it kept us back from the rest of the world beyond the room where he lay. Everything flowing on like a river, like a ribbon, like a tide around us, while we took the last molecules of breath he had let go of and pressed them to our eyelids and our cheeks. I kissed him. I was not afraid of his gone skin, of his gone eyes, and the set of his gone jaw. I kissed the cliff of his cheekbones and the gully below them, where freckles I had counted like constellations in recent weeks seemed to disappear with the colour that fled his cheeks. Thank you. So, Katerina, can I call you Rena? Oh, Is you that okay? Rena. So, Rena, um, for you, deciding a, a long time ago, more than 20 years ago, to go and walk to Compostela on, on the f this famous pilgrimage, and I mean, feet have been treading this path for thousands of years. A thousand, anyway. A thousand yeah, years, yeah. yeah. So, how come? How come? How come? Well, um, we, you know, um, we, we had a beautiful house and, you know, we were a very happy family, but we, um, we had a sort of crisis in our marriage and I didn't quite know what to do about that. Uh, so, I walk um, and I, I think it's the only time in my head when I actually heard someone say, you need to walk the Camino. I hardly even knew what the Camino was. I'd recently heard about it, but what it was, I didn't really know. And so then um, I did. <laughs> I, um, I flew to London and um, caught a bus from Victoria Coach Station, which was driven by a couple of mad Spanish drivers. We hurtled through France in the middle of the night, dropped me in Bayonne, and then I caught a little chuff-chuff train to Saint-Jean, Pied-de-Port, which is the little village at the foot of the Pyrenees in France, and climbed over and started walking till I got to Compostela. <laughs> Simple, really. <laughs> <laughs> climbed over, she said. You know, she just sort of popped over the Pyrenees, yes. <laughs> she had, we, we might get on to the blisters and the terrible weather and the, the pain of the, of the actual physical walking. Um, so, in fact, let's mention that, because one of the th other things that I found in common, I I've thought about you up in stirrups, because I remember the stirrups. <laughs> when, 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 I, when I was thinking of Rena with the, the blisters and the feet and the... So can we just talk about the physical things for a moment? 
Oh, oh. Go, please. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I had no idea that I would travel to the other side of the world to talk with total strangers absolutely passionately about feet. You know? <laughs> um, it, it was, that was one of the you know, abiding topics of comms. And we shared feet and we shared shoes and people gave me classes and things. But, you know, it made total sense of um, old stories of, you know, in ancient legends and things. That feet washing and care for the feet is absolutely primal. And in the refuges where you stay, there's the hospitalero, and his task often, and his willing task, is to wash your feet as a pilgrim. So that was one of the lovely things that um, I did experience when I went from refuge to refuge along the way. You know, there'd be a hospitalero who'd say, let me look at your feet, and you know, stuff them in buckets of water and things like that. And they were very sore, and they got blisters and things, and I had terrible boots. But um, by the time, and by the time I got to, to Compostela, you know, I'd lost two nails in my one foot and things. I think boots are better now I, <laughs> than they once were. But it was a hard walk because the first part of it was um, very wet and very, very heavy mud on the track. And so lifting a boot out of, um, you know, gluggy mud, rubbing, um, rubbing against thick woolen socks and then never, they were never dry, getting in each morning to wet socks and wet boots and walking on again. Well, it was not that nice. <laughs> anyway. I need there. to add that we're talking about 750 kilometers, kgs, something like that, nearly 800 kgs. It's, it's a long oh, way. Kilometers, yeah. yeah, yeah. Kilometers, yeah. <laughs> kgs, I say. Kilometers, I mean. Kilometers, Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so walking is another thing that you have in common because one of the things you did during lockdown before you were pregnant, is you walked up Mangafo Every single day. I think yeah. if there was one day I didn't go in that seven weeks, um, I think because of rain or I was in a really bad mood. I can't remember what it was. I did, I just didn't. It was a really interesting matter of timing, actually. Right before my dad passed away, I got a, a foot injury that meant that I couldn't walk. And there was a bush track near where my family lived and where I was staying that I would walk almost every single day. And I couldn't walk for the last probably 12 weeks of my dad's life and in the many months afterwards it was too painful to walk I couldn't and I had such a strong strong sense that I just needed to put my feet just one in front of the other and keep going to get through it and I couldn't I was stuck and so I had to sit with this well of feelings for a really long time and so then by the time that we got to that lockdown really fortunately my foot had finally after about a year gotten better mm. and so I could walk again and the really interesting thing I noticed is, was I was walking to process the frustration, get out the frustration of trying to have a baby and nothing working, nothing working. But I was also finally, in many ways, processing my dad's death that had taken me, it had just sat dormant in me for so long and there was something that was activated in my foot, footfalls that allowed me to actually really let it come up again. And I think, you know, I think it was in a way similar for my mum, because she was in lockdown on her own for various reasons, we were all separated. And the quiet, the quiet of that space, and the inability to go anywhere or see anyone meant that the things that had sat dormant or, you know, had been unaddressed really came up. And I think we all really missed my dad in that time. Mm. And I felt really lucky to be able to, to, to walk that out, walk out those two difficult things. Mm. And can I, can yeah. I just say, um, 
I, I think walking is really helpful in these situations. It's terrible when you couldn't have um, walked for mm. that time. Um, I read a lot of um, Rebecca Solnit, who's written about walking, and she says, can I just read what mm. she says, because I think it's so interesting. She, uh, she says, well, she's talking about pilgrimage, but walking really, a pleat of thinking and doing, one that makes it possible to move step by step towards intangible goals that are otherwise so hard to grasp. And mm. I've always found that with walking, that um, I need to go to walk to work something out. And I'm the same, because you know that the second you step out, you will not, even if it's only for half an hour, you will not be the same as you were when you left. Something well, so will have something shifted. Something shifts, that's something, right. Even if yeah. it's tiny, yeah. there will have been a shift, which in my head I equate to progress yes, somehow. That's yeah. right. And this morning I went for a walk before I came down here, and I heard someone say, come star." <laughs> and I turned around and I thought she was talking to me because she was right beside me and um, I said, are you talking to me in Spanish? And she said, I'm talking to my friend. And I said, I'm just going to go and talk about um, walking the pilgrimage. And she said, um, I wanted to name my child Santiago. <laughs> <laughs> and then I said to her, what do, what, uh, what do you do? And she said, I'm an engineer. And um, I said, do you know who the patron saint of engineers is? Yes, she said, Santo Domingo do Calzada, <laughs> who was a monk that um, I wrote, you know, I learned about on the Camino, who was called, who built bridges, because rivers in um, medieval times were controlled by ferrymen who were often pretty unscrupulous, so building a bridge was very helpful for pilgrims. And she told me that the definition of engineer today, even, is... Um, a builder of bridges for the Camino, even oh, in the wow. 21st century. So that was really interesting. And then um, the other woman said she was an architect and we started walking together and she'd walked the Camino from Portugal. And we walked along and she said, this is what I liked about being on the Camino. You could find yourself talking to anyone together and then you'd just march off again. So, you know, that was a really nice um, thing that happened this morning. Can I just say, there is so much serendipity in your life and in this book. Like, <laughs> that that is a, just does not even surprise me, even though it really delights me that you had that experience this morning. Because the whole way through your book, you either meet people or things come back to you in really surprising ways that... Is really quite extraordinary. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, isn't it? <laughs> like losing your stick and someone saying, "Don't worry, your stick will come. Your walking stick will come back." And as a reader, you th you're quite dubious, thinking, "How? There are so many people going by." And then, sure enough, it comes back to you. It does. <laughs> I find that really. Yeah. Yeah, it did come back to me. That's true. So Rita left her stick accidentally behind her walking stick that was helping her to walk. She left it behind at one of the refugios. No, I left it in a chapel. Oh, in a chapel. Where was it? Um, a beautiful chapel where the Dutch, two Dutch men that I was walking with, he used it as a sort of pointer to show me all the different things that he could see in the carvings because the, these two Dutch uh, men were really interested in um, the influence of Islam on um, the carvings of the churches, and they had studied them, and so he was using my stick, you know, and I was looking blindly at this and that, and then, <laughs> and then we <laughs> set off again to the refuge, and I realized I'd completely forgotten about my stick, I was so happy, um, and then I realized I didn't have it, and I was cast down, because what if a Spanish dog came along, and you needed to stick against a fierce Spanish dog? But, you know, they said it will come back, and who should bring it back but three, um, three German women who came from well, Austria, actually, and they were 
rather quite large women, when they marched about with, uh, in arm in arm, singing songs in part time, in hard harmony. <laughs> they knew that it belonged to the Neuseeländische Frauen, so <laughs> they came back. They, they picked, picked it up and brought it yeah. to you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's wonderful. <coughs> Can we go back just for a moment to, to Mangafo? Oh, yes. And your walks up the Maunga. Because I was totally enchanted by the fact that you started leaving notes on a tree. Can you just maybe read a bit or tell us a bit about it? I did. Um, I'll, maybe I'll read the... There are a lot of, there are a lot of notes that get left in my family. Um, right. Particularly my dad was a lever of notes. There's still, there are still um, old biscuit containers with notes that dad left complaining about them being empty. Um, <laughs> which I don't think anyone's thrown away. I've still got notes that dad <laughs> left, but, but you'd find a note that had been left there for ages. And when I was walking... Um, during the lockdown, I was, I felt really worried for people. I was just worried that pe people would feel lonely. I suppose I was probably worried that I would feel lonely. And so I just thought, oh, I'll leave notes for people where they can see them. So that if they're walking up these paths, they won't feel so alone. Yeah. Um, or they'll know that someone else that they've never met is thinking about them. And so that's, that's why I did that. Um, which seems very strange, and I really honestly, because I made sure that there was no one around when I hung them from this tree, I actually had no idea whether anyone had ever read them or seen them, but then in the greatest um, serendipitous thing, yes. mm -hmm. the, um, Jenny Helen, who is the head of Ellen and Elm in New Zealand, uh, after the fact, when she read my book, sent a message through, because she had taken photos of some of the notes I'd left and put them up on Facebook and said, someone's leaving poetry on Mongafo. And she didn't know it was you. No, and she didn't know that it was me, and then she read the book and went, oh, this, this is this author that I am now publishing, which is really nice. But um, I can read a little bit about that, if you like. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm still finding notes from my dad tucked away in biscuit tins. This is empty, dad. <laughs> <laughs> And, and in books, Dad was here. <laughs> he always left us notes, often ones pointing out that all the chips had been eaten or the baking had run out. Sometimes he'd just leave a note by your bed with a little drawing and his initials. And when you took it out to show him, he'd smile and you'd realise he'd left it for you weeks ago, just to let you know he was about. He once wrote his and my mother's initials on a tree on the track he knew I liked to walk through. He must have come down recently and written in vivid marker on the trunk that leaned out beside the wooden boardwalk in the mangroves. When I discovered it, I stopped and laughed, and it felt like magic. He grinned like a madman when I told him I had found it. I told him off for writing on a tree, but I loved it. The next time I walked there, the rain had washed the letters away, and all that remained was the faint, faint ghost of an L. I looked every time after that, just in case. His sloping capital letters written in a rush, his words always made me feel included and seen. The first note I leave says, I hope you won't be too lonely. I write it on a piece of green plastic board, piercing the top with two holes to thread a bit of twine through. I tie it to the tree I always admire as I walk up the track to the top of the maunga, and I leave it there. I hope nobody takes it down. So, Rita, that leads us into the notes and messages that were left for you. People wrote in your journal. You say that the most important thing you carried with you was your journal. And people wrote in it on the way, but they left messages before you even yeah, left so, New Zealand. So before I went, one of my friends gave me this very beautiful book, um, which is empty, and she said, write everything down. 
and um, I, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing, actually. But I said to the children and to um, various friends, write something in my book so I'll find you when I'm walking. And um, I also wrote a few poems, so I scattered them through because, you know, I, uh, because I, I read poetry and it helps me. Anyway, um, they did, and, you know, I would um, be, you know, I'd be re uh, walking and I might be writing and I'd find a message from a child. So um, there's one from Olivia, and she says, um, uh, This early on, you are probably only a little bit enlightened. In fact, In fact, if you're in England, you're probably not enlightened at all. <laughs> Are you immersed in cool Britannia? I hope you're not going to cheat and ring us up, Mum. Remember what your horoscope said. <laughs> so um, they, but they all did things like that. Yeah. Mm. Would you like at this point to read us a slightly longer passage that you've chosen from, from your book? Because I'm aware we've had a couple oh. of readings from, oh, from okay. Michelle. So. Uh, well, one of the things that um, 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 uh, Carol was going to said to me, you know, you do meet a bunch of interesting and strange people. And mm. I did. I met fantastically interesting people. Um, but I thought I'd read you a bit about uh, meeting an Irish woman that I met just outside Pamplona. Um, which was on about the only um, part of the Camino in my mind that I remember was warm, because mostly it seemed to be raining, it was extremely cold a lot of the time, which was a surprise, because I thought I'd chosen wisely by going in September, but no, <laughs> um, it was rather wet. Anyway, so this is about, on about the first, um, ten, in the first week, in 10 days. On the outskirts of Pamplona, a noisy basin of trucks, smoke, factories, and swirling clouds of blackbirds, we met a pink-faced Irish woman. She was bent beneath her pack from which swung a long loop of rosary beads and her scallop shell. She wore dusty brown lace-up shoes that must have hurt her because she limped. She kept turning around as if she'd been waiting for us or because she needed to talk to someone. After she'd unwound her beads and wrapped them round her wrist, Jan took her pack, it's one of the Dutchmen, and strapped it on the front of his body. We walked very slowly. She linked her arm through mine, but kept stopping to mop her face with a large checked handkerchief. Ahead of us, the land rose. We were walking towards Alto del Perdón, 800 metres above sea level. The bleached line of the Camino twisted through a rocky countryside, and butterflies, bright as lemons, flickered round our faces. Looking back, we could see squares of green and brown on hillsides, and looking west, far away, the purple hills of Galicia, and somewhere on one of their peaks, the Cruz de Ferro, the highest point on the Camino. I wondered if the Irishwoman would get to Compostela. This was her first day. Her feet were sore, she had corns, she could feel blisters coming on. She'd been on many pilgrimages to Lafdeg and Ireland 13 times, and once, with 2,000 others, she walked from Paris to Chartres. They had little buses that ran along beside you if you got tired, because you couldn't stop, you had to keep going. <laughs> Tell me about Lafdeg. You've heard about Lafdeg and you come all the way from New Zealand? I read a book. <laughs> the writer was walking round Ireland. He went to Lafdeg. He didn't like it much. 
He was young, I dare say. It's not so popular with the young. It's hard for them to keep kneeling and praying and walking and staying awake throughout the night. They think it's boring, so they do. I go with my sister and it's better together. I've been to Lourdes, of course, with my sister and her daughter. Now that's something to see, the sick in their beds or in their chairs. It's faith, indeed it is so. The Dutch men strode ahead. They couldn't understand her enthusiastic confidences. Somehow, this woman and I recognized each other. She was a ghost from my childhood. She had the same red hands as those of the tired, overworked primary school nuns who sometimes had to corral as many as 40 children every day. The same simple faith, artless friendliness, and steely zeal. She had taken my arm without a trace of self-consciousness, and we walked together. Conversations between strangers are always a possibility. Unexpected moments of your past flare and bloom. You know this woman. You feel the warmth of her body beside yours, and you're happy to talk about the cold, her corns, and the vigil with her sister to love Dag. Jan turned round. No blisters, no pilgrims, he said. It's in all the old books. Hospital arrows bathe pilgrims' feet. It's the first Camino tradition. Oh, no, my dear young man, said the Irish woman. It's older than the Camino. Our dear Lord at the Last Supper. <laughs> she bowed her head and kissed her rosary. <laughs> And the characters that you meet, and that, a lot of them were absolute characters, weren't they? <laughs> it made me think also, you write a lovely um, essay about, about acting and getting into characters. Do you want to just talk about that for a moment? The, the char- you, I mean, you have a, a superb reputation as an actor. Um, you do. And um, you have a sort of special way of becoming this other person. Well, I think, uh, I think it's... Um I would say I love the characters in your book. Yes. So it's like a film, actually, reading your book. It's, it's just a tapestry of really remarkable people that I feel like you could only meet there and only at that exact moment that you were there. So it's just got this fleeting magic about it that I love. I could see them all so yeah. vividly. Um, ca- yeah, ca- character is a real um, relief to me because I hide in characters. It's a real active. Um, sleight of hand vanishing point for me. I find exiting myself and entering a character a real, yeah, a tremendous relief and solace. And I think I've always found that with reading books as a child growing up, it was a chance to vanish. And then, so there was a natural movement towards acting and being able to vanish again and actually be inside the story, not just reading it, but really be, be mm. in it, be living those characters. So it's, yeah, that's... That's what they are to me, characters. There's somewhere to hide. <laughs> somewhere to hide. I'm not sure that all actors would, would feel the same way, but it's certainly, I think, one of the things that makes you such an exceptionally good actor. Oh, that's very yeah. kind. Yes. I don't know. I, I expect you're right. I think actors um, feel differently. Mm. And, and some actors probably feel really exposed when they act, which I don't. I feel the opposite. You're inside the other character, and yeah. so it's not you. You're not yeah. exposed. I feel exposed on the other side when you have to promote things or turn mm. up as yourself. <laughs> very awkward. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very, I find that very challenging. Like, mm. I even found that challenging. I write about it in the book when mm. I got married because I couldn't be anybody else in the ceremony <laughs> for obvious reasons. I couldn't go, okay, well, I'm, I'm this character and she's marrying this. I had to obviously be myself. Excruciating. Mm. It's so awful. Mm. It is not a comfortable 
place for me, my own skin probably. Which fascinates me because I find your essays in here so personal. Yeah. They are, you reveal a lot about yourself in yeah, the essays. I do, but I, I, I've said this a bit recently and I don't think people believe me, but it's true. I, I wrote to pin down my life. I wrote to pin down my dad and hold him close to me and to understand a new map. It never occurred to me when I wrote it, even though I handed in the essays, you know, every time I wrote one, I'd hand it in to my editor. It did not really occur to me until it got handed on to my editor that anyone was going to read it. That was not something that I... So I think that that was a really good trick that allowed me to write those things um, because I didn't know. I had fooled myself thinking it was just something I was just going into the world of story. Right. Incorrect. Yeah. <laughs> and you've mentioned editors. I think this is a very appropriate moment for me to mention that I think Jane Parkin might be in the audience. If, those of you who don't know, there's often a superb editor hidden in the background who gets no limelight. Jane Parkin actually was the editor of both these books and mm. both these authors speak so highly of her. Um, I was talking um, to other authors yesterday, um, particularly Fiona Kidman, who also said that Jane Parkin edits her work. Mm. Um, Jane are you here? Yes, she is. Where are you, Jane? <laughs> Jane. Can Jane Parkin just stand up? Because we want to thank you. <laughs> Where is she? <laughs> Over there. Thank you for the lights. Thank you, Jane. I just think people like Jane do not get acknowledged. And so many authors have commented on how wonderful she is. Yes, I'm very, I feel very lucky to have Jane, and um, when Mary became my publisher, wonderful Mary McCallum at the, uh, Cooper Press, I said to her, you know, I'd really like to have Jane um, edit my books, and she said, well, you know, we normally do our own editing, and I said, yes, but I've known her since I was at university, we flattered together, <laughs> I thought if I ever wrote a book, I want Jane to be my editor, so Mary said, of course, yeah. and so lovely, lovely. <laughs> we had this... Um, Lovely, lovely yeah. time together, working together. Now, can we just talk about connection to nature and the environment for a moment? Um, partly because of what your mother did for you at a time when you were low, just with pot plants, mm -hmm. and, um, and also your connection to the land as well, Rena. because, I mean, at one point, I was sort of horrified when I read about you walking alongside a motorway. In fact, you took a, a bus or a train at one point because you realised, and I think someone actually, one of the characters you met says to you, what on, you come from New Zealand and you're walking along this motorway, you've got beautiful places in New Zealand where you can walk. But a lot of the other time, you were in a landscape that was interesting, and your connection with it as well. Can you each talk about that briefly? Um, yeah, we, as children, we really grew up um, in love with the natural world, which I think it is, is partly to do with my dad from an ocean point of view, but mm. very specifically to do with my mother, who was such a, in the garden and with nature, we had butterflies and caterpillars and chrysalids and tadpoles and everything growing and plants and seedlings, and it was such a big part of our growing up, and I am in love with the natural world because of my mother, and um, it's a really nice link between us because I think all of us kids were really bonded to my dad because of the boat, which was something later we went and did just us kids and dad together, but I, and also my sister, I think, are very bonded to our mother through, nat through the natural world, through gardens and plants and just growing living things. I think the act of nurturing and, and tending to something to watch it grow 
is a, it just is never lost on me. It is never, I'm always amazed that when I plant, I've got, I just put some wildflowers in my planter boxes on my balcony and just watching their heads pop through. I'm just like, you know, a fan of the Beatles concert. <laughs> it's just, it's so exciting to me. It's so, it's still so amazing to me. And I know, and I know that probably sounds ridiculous, but those, Tiny, mm. tiny moments of life and beginnings of things yeah. that was seeded in me from when I was really small. Yes. Yeah, and it's been something that has always, when things are challenging, rescued me to some degree. Yeah. And, and your mum did it for you with, when you were feeling low. Yeah, she did. She, she did that for me um, during sort of our IVF journey and things we were going on. She came around and sorted out my garden. Which is, we live in a little unit and it has a balcony and it was just a shambles. and. Things had gone to seed, and it was just a mess. And she just came and fixed it, and then the fixing it fixed me, which I don't think she realised that she did. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, there's a little scene in your in your book where all the swan plant leaves are in the laundry. Yeah. I thought that was lovely because it, she brought them inside so that the, chrys the chrysalids could hatch mm. before they. Um, our mother didn't do that. <laughs> 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 and the other thing that. Um, uh, I remember about your, your childhood, even though the sea is not your friend, mm. you say, but you scrambled in and out of boats and, um, and onto rocky outcrops. And some, you said at one point um, that your heels or the soles of your feet were really tough and strong, something mm. like that. We weren't allowed to go barefoot. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> our I mother was, no. was quite um, sort of English and anxious, and we always kept to paths. We didn't go scrambling. Well, I didn't, because I was blind. My brothers might have. <laughs> um, but um, that was a real contrast. Your lovely, free um, uh, childhood, mm -hmm. and mine was pretty much in a corner. <laughs> the book, yeah. It's wonderful that you still found, found walking. Oh, walking's great because it's solitary and you don't have to catch a ball. Because <laughs> 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 I really relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I love walking. I can walk it for miles. That's fine. <laughs> and I love, Nate, I love being outside. I, you know, I have to go outside every day. So what about the landscape in Spain? Well, the landscape in Spain is... Um, it, you start with the Pyrenees, and it's um, you know it's it's a big walk that first day, and I did walk over in a big storm, and it's about 27 kilometres that first day I think, and it's up 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 and down down down, and then you come down to the the oldest um, refuge for the Camino, which um, begins with a beautiful. It's got a prayer, the Roncesvalles prayers, and, and the first words are, "The door is open to all." And so that, um, that sense of inclusiveness, that's, that's the sort of prevailing um, ethos of the Camino. Anyone can walk the Camino. Uh, so it's, and then it sort of, go, you go through the Rioja, which is the wine-growing um, Basque country, and that's green and, interest, and you know, full of um, vineyards and things like that. Then it flattens out. You're going northwest towards um, Compostela and Finisterre, the end of the world. Flattens out to a large, long period um, of, of tableland, really called the Meseta, and it's very flat. And that's often described. And it's long and hard, and there's big sky and emptiness, and it's barren. And you might see, you know, a castle over there, or a remains of one, or way over there. 
um, a stony uh, sort of little village on a hilltop or something, but you're very aware of the flatness, the dun-coloured um, earth and the huge sky, in my case, lots of storms. And that's often called the dark night of the soul part of the Camino because it's the hard part. You feel as if you're inching along, not getting very, way, very far away, getting very far. And then you come towards Galicia, which is um, green and um, the umbrella capital of Spain because it's also very wet. Um, that's wild and actually full of... Um, Acacia tree, um, uh, what, uh, gum trees, what, what, what's the proper name? Eucalypts, which, which came from Australia, uh, and, um, strangely, and certain um, Galicians are not happy about that because they are not the natural trees of Spain, so there's some move to um, restore them to beach, back to beach and things, but the land's not very good and eucalypts don't mind that. Mm. Yeah. We're going to run out of time. I do want to save time at the end for questions. There's just a, a couple more things. Can you just mention, uh, explain to people the significance of the scallop shell? Oh, and the also scallop the world, shell. the word ultrea. Ultrea. Mm. Oh, well, um, you know, I don't know whether you know that all pilgrims um, get a scallop shell. It's a sort of badge of the pilgrim. And, you know, you all know that meal that we all once ate called Coquille Saint-Jacques. Uh, scallops, well, that's on a, you know, on a scallop shell. Well, that's part of this whole St. James myth, because St. James was an apostle um, who uh, went to Spain after the ascension, after Jesus left them, and he tried to convert Spain, and he only got two um, converts. Uh, he was uh, very unsuccessful. And um, when he got back to um, Israel, or no, where he went, Herod chopped off his head, and um, an angel uh, said to somebody, one of the two converts who'd come back with him, um, you need to go back to the Iberian Peninsula, back to where you came from. So they took the dead body of St. James and, um, with a severed head into a, sto in a stone boat, and they arrived back uh, uh, in Spain, and somebody was riding, and, uh, riding along the shore, apparently, and on horseback, and um, saw this extremely strange thing of a dead body in a stone boat and, I don't know, two strange men. And his horse run, uh, sort of reared and plunged and then when he into the water and when he emerged, he was covered in scallop shells. So um, the sort of association that um, this body was actually Santiago's all blended, you know, it's all political, all about turning Spain into um, uh, Catholicism and keeping away from the Moors who were... Um, also mounting quite a successful um, uh, what's the campaign on Spain. In fact, there was even a uh, bone of the prophets in um, Cordoba, I think it was. And so the Camino was uh, definitely um, the um, idea of finding his bones in Compostela. That was all part of Catholic propaganda put up by the French, the French priests who were very powerful mm. in those days. Yeah. Mm. And the word ultrea, people would say oh. it to each other on, as ultrea. you passed. If you, um, if you met a pilgrim, you always called out Buen Camino, wherever you were, or ultrea, which is um, courage or kia, kaha, something like that. Mm. Um, and it was just a lovely way you could, um, you know, you saw it, you, obviously if you're walking the Camino, you know, you would say that to them as, they, as you passed each other or not. But if you were in a little town and you saw someone with a scallop shell, 
just turn over and say uh, to um, Ultrea or Buen Camino. So it was a lovely connection, having that scallop shell that bound you. Now we're going to run out of time. Can I just mention structure? Because that's another thing that both your books have in common. These passages and then a gap and then the next passage. And you both do it in your books. Can you just talk about, you want to start, just talk about your, the structure of your book and relate it to um, the other one as well? Yeah, <laughs> I suppose that as a circular, uh, yeah, it's a loop that we both did, wasn't it? Mm. Um, and I was conscious of that when I wrote the book, that I was both closing a circle of my dad's life and opening one, and be you know, beginning a new one for myself. Um, and I wanted, I really wanted in this book, the essays to speak back to each other across the timeline of both my dad's life and his death and my own upbringing. So, they all belong together, and, and while you know, they're fine on their own, <laughs> they, I think to read them in order, you feel the shape of a universe that unravels in different directions. And the beginning of the first essay, and the first paragraph of the first essay, and the last paragraph of the final essay are um, a mirror of each yes. other, because I held my dad as he died, and he held me when I was born um, for a few hours, just the two of us on our own. And so I just wanted it. Yeah, I just really had a sense of um, the circularity of, of life and that, and that path you go on to come back again full circle. Which is exactly what a pilgrimage is. Pilgrimage mm. is circular. You set out in order to return. Mm. Yeah. That's right. Um, and I mean, I, I couldn't say that in terms of writing this book that um, I had any sense of structure except, thank God, I had a journey because I had to get from one end to another. So that sort of... <laughs> Um, dictated a certain structure because I'm a bit wobbly about structures. Um, my daughter Olivia says I've got a butterfly mind <laughs> in all directions. But, the, the, but so the Camino itself was a, a good structure. Um, and I think for me, you know, I had to come back to New Zealand and um, come home and realise that actually home was a different thing. We were we. Um, we ended up, you know, not living in that house, and now um, I live here, and Gerald lives in his house, and we see each other. But we—it's a different form of family. We've re we've um, reconfigured, and it's different. And you know, that was one of the things the Camino taught me that things change, and you don't always know how they're going to be. But having had the experience, it was a, what I think for me was the experience of walking this long walk, meeting these people, and thinking, you know, things will be all right. They will unfold, and you will find your way, but it might not be the ending that you expect. Mm. Yes. Did you have, Michelle, one more piece you wanted to read for us? Oh, I'm, was, I'm not sure. Do you mean like a, a walking? I'm, no, walking I'm just not sure. We had we sorted out also. I'm just aware we've got very little time mm -hmm. left. I need to get to questions quite soon. Yeah, but um, I think you had one other piece you were going to read. I can read, just read one about um, walking in that space at Mongafo during the lockdown, if you like. Yeah, just, just a short one. Yeah, it's, just, it's about a page. In a little yeah, bit. that's lovely. I walk in the rain, in the soft showers that seem to fall every morning before clearing at noon, and I feel the coolness on my tongue. I seldom encounter anybody, but when I do and I hear them talk, through the quiet their voices seem amplified, jarring. A woman shouts into her cell phone as she walks with a lopsided gait, and I learn about her son in quarantine in another country, and how she hasn't seen anybody on the road today. The notes of her rising inflection puncture the air, and I wince. I want to cover my ears. 
I have adjusted so quickly to the quiet that I pick up every sound, and I'm sure I can hear the pops of air as earthworms come up from the wet soil. The first few nights of lockdown, it took me a long time to fall asleep. The lack of sound was so acute. I thought about how it is often said that a silence is deafening, but now as I listen in the dark, I notice how the silence lives inside itself, like a Russian doll. Silence inside silence inside silence. My ears reach a quiet place, and then another is revealed, and another, and I travel down avenues of silence, like it's a network, a road, a map. The rumble of the motorway has been muted. The city has reached a stillness I have never encountered before, and it seems as if we are the last people on earth. It's so quiet I can almost hear my heart beating. Is the next note that I leave on the tree. That's lovely. Thank you. Can we have the house lights up, please? There are microphones here and here. If you'd like to make your way forward to the microphone, if you have questions. Here's a first question here. Thank you. Uh, a question uh, directed to Rena. Would you be willing to elaborate perhaps a little more on the big walk in terms of your recovery from your problem in New Zealand? Are you able to say, was it the, the, the walking? Was it the contacts you were making with strangers? Or was it partly perhaps just the total distance being away so far from New Zealand, or a combination of these things, mm. which helped you to see what had happened in a good perspective? Um, it wasn't just about being away from New Zealand because I was always thinking about home all the time. But I think the walking every day, just slowly, that's a very simple thing to do. Um, you can't walk any faster than you walk. And, you, and as you walk, you remember. And things sort of work themselves out. And, in my case, I did have, without exception, oh, I met a couple of unpleasant boys at one refuge. Um, all the insects I see, I kill, he said. <laughs> um, I, but, you know, I had such good experiences with people. People were so open and helpful and generally kind. And I thought, this Camino is really just a microcosm of something bigger. You know, if this is your attitude in life, you'll be all right, whatever it might be. Does that answer your question? And another question over here. Thank you. Can you speak more directly into the microphone? I, I loved Thank your book, Rena. It, it kind of slowed me down. It was very meditative in, in the reading, which was wonderful. I, I, my question is, you, you walked that before um, cell phones, yeah. and yes. I just wondered whether you think it would be the same now. I'm so glad I didn't have a cell phone um, or a blog. <laughs> 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 because I had boots and paper and pen. You know, um, you can't do much more. It's all so human, really, isn't it? It's so slow and not electronic. And I didn't have a camera either. Um, so I think it would be very different because I've seen Camino blogs and I've seen... Um, and, I, and I mean, Olivia says in her thing, I hope you're not going to cheat and ring up. I think I only rang up about once or twice once when I got there, and once when I suddenly did want to talk to them. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. 
Presumably now, people could be in contact with everyone all, all the time. time yeah, so you don't have that sort of time to just be by yourself. Yeah, and yeah. Um, would make a big difference, mm. wouldn't it? Yes, yes. Are there any more questions? Please do come forward to the microphone if you, if you have other questions. Thank you. Hi, I've got a question for both of you. Um, Michelle, I think you mentioned that when you wrote the book, you didn't really have a sense that anyone would read it. Mm. And... Um, Oh, I'm Rina's daughter, Olivia. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mentioned that just because I was asking Mum about this the other day. She said she didn't actually have a sense anyone would ever read her book either. Um, so I was wondering what you both had learned from what's happened after your book's gone out into the world and other people have you know, interpreted from it and taken inferences or um, emphases that maybe you didn't realise were there um, or just were different from what you expected. Good question. Um, I am really, I feel really happy to let the book go into the world. Like I didn't, I wasn't too worried about how people might take it. I had, I had a hope for it, I think, once I realised that, you know, there might be some people that would read it. I hoped that despite the specificity and how personal it was to me, that it might um, have an effect on people of of allowing them to examine their own life or consider or reflect on parts of their own lives that maybe match mine or, you know, that the similarities that would give them an opportunity to, yeah, to contemplate or to, you know, access in that way. So I guess I hope that for it. But, um, yeah, I don't, by and large, I don't mind it being out there um, so far. It's only been out there for a week. So it could, <laughs> it could, could go really badly at any point. Yeah. Um, but for, at the moment... Quite good. <laughs> <laughs> Olivia, if you don't mind, I, can I make a comment about you? Yeah. The, the circles and connections here, um, because Olivia standing here is a similar age to Michelle. She is Rena's daughter, and she is also expecting a baby at about the same time. <laughs> so. Also science-based. <laughs> also science-based. <laughs> yeah, so that there are wonderful sort of connections and, and link-ups between you and, and circular, circular things, aren't there? Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Are there any more questions? Oh, I, sorry, can I, I would really like to hear your response to that, to that actually. Right. About uh, it being in the world. About, about being, oh, well, um, I was pretty nervous about the book being out in the world because um, who, who would read it? Um, but I was immeasurably um, lifted because Greg O'Brien did yes. some drawings for it. And um, they are fantastic, I think, little line drawings and some little circular ones which he called um, um, secular altars. And they have little things on them that kind of um, are emblematic of the Camino. And I thought, oh gosh, this book now, there's this lovely blend of uh, art it goes, and it's, I'm not alone, I've got a friend that's coming with me. So um, that, that helped. And um, Interestingly, Greg wouldn't allow his name to be on the front of the book. Would he? He said it's your book, Rena. Mm, but I, but um, he gave me his his support and um, um, the way Mary and um, at Cooper Press helped me sort of set the whole book up. You know, I got a lot of confidence from that. And they are exquisite. They mm. those Greg O'Brien's drawings are exquisite. They enhance this beautiful book so well. Yes, mm. yes. Thank you. Another question here. I have a question for Katharina. I just did a quick Google when you said that you'd walked the Camino in the time before cell phones, and you walked it in 1998. Mm. So what made you, did you 
What made you do the book now, now. More than 20 years later? Well, uh, well, I'm a very slow developer. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, took the, I took the diary, um, at the, and I wrote it, you know, this great big book, you know, diary, I filled it up, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then um, things intervened in my life, and I didn't, I wasn't able to. But then in 2008, um, I went back to university and um, I did the uh, degree in creative writing at Victoria, and that became my project. And I wrote um, this great, big, wobbly, capacious <laughs> bunch of words, and um, it, it wasn't bad, but you know, it wasn't right either. And um, there was some interest, but there were lots of rejections, and so I put it in the cupboard. I just thought, it's not that it's not. This is never going to happen until one day at the women's bookshop, <laughs> Mary McCallum came up to launch a book um, by one of her writers, and she said, what has happened to your manuscript? And I said, it's in a dark hole. And she said, send it to me, and I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and um, then on the 31st of July, that, which was about three months later, she read, I was at Dizengoff having a cup of coffee early in the morning, a phone rang, it was, Mary, where's your manuscript? I said, uh, she said, I've got to close for my, you know, 2020 publication, you know, who am I going to choose? And I want to see it. Well, I sent it to her, so God bless Mary. <laughs> that's, that's how it came into being. Yeah. And then Jane Parkin worked on uh, it, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and made it the beautiful thing it is. I do want to recommend both these books to you. Um, many of you won't have had a chance yet to, to buy Michelle's one because it's so newly out. They're both, I mean, I read fiction mainly, and I, these are two non-fiction books that I have just adored. They, the writing is so beautiful, and the integrity of these women just absolutely shines through. I I want to read one final tiny quote. Is there, and yes, this is another time for one more question. Thank you. It's not really a question. It's just to say, Carol, that you haven't acknowledged that Rena is one of the most inspirational teachers. Oh. And, um, one of the what? Are, Sorry, say that again. One she of, was one of the most inspirational teachers. Right. And she has a lot of fans that she's taught. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. That's lovely. That's lovely. <laughs> Are there any more questions? I just want, you know, I just want to read one tiny bit because I felt it, it's from your book, reading, but it applies to both of you. It's the statement on cream paper that Luke gave to you as you got on the bus in London. Um, Luke is a friend of Rena's in London, and he was very worried about her going on her own on this, this journey. And he, the bus door was about to close, and he thrust a piece of paper into her hand, and it said, to one who knows how to wait, all things are sooner or later revealed on the condition that she has the courage never to deny in times of darkness what she witnessed in times of light. Mm. And it sums up both books beautifully. Please thank, thank these two you, wonderful women. Tanakoe, you've been listening to a podcast from the 2021 Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi o Tamaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.